Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Well, guys, Tammy can't be here with us today. She's flying back from uh, her, now we know, unsuccessful interview to be Joe Biden's uh, vice presidential running mate. The long walk home. We were all vetted. missed opportunity. Yeah. Uh, I know we were all vetted for this, and none of us were picked. You know it was unsuccessful for the VP pick, but we don't know which cabinet position she will be picked for. That's true. That's true. She's still in the running. Tomorrow, Wittitz for HUD secretary. (laughs) I think we should run on our own rational security platform. Don't you? We could form a party. It's a party every week. Different kind of party. What would our platform be? Let's drinking. see. Lots Talking. of scotch drinking. Um, we never get together in person. All voting is remote. Um, that's and, it. And that's it. And segways are prized above all other things. And no low-flying helicopters. And no low-flying. That's it. That was the deal breaker with her and Biden. Biden probably These are the issues, that the kitchen table issues that matter to rational security listeners. At least in the houses that shake from the low-flying helicopters. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Russia and Running Mates edition. Like that's a little bit of alliteration. It's nice. It's cute. Okay. We should change mates, though, to something that begins with R. Russia and running... Rats. Running what? Running rats. Running rats? I don't think I don't any- know. Running ragged? Running <laughs> rates? Running This is why we workshop the titles before we begin most episodes. <laughs> just to let you listeners in on on the process here. Yeah, you're really you're really getting a peek behind the curtain. <laughs> I was not comparing either Kamala Harris or Mike Pence to a rat. Oh no, right. they'll do that. They'll do that themselves. One of them might bear the comparison. <laughs> now, now, uh, I am here in my remote. Here's another word for you, studio, with my good friends Ben Wittes, Tamarkoff, and Wittes, and our friend David Priest. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi there. And playing the role of Tamara Kaufman Wittes is Susan Hennessy. Oh yeah. God, did I say Tamara Kaufman Wittes? Yeah. yeah. I that. always <laughs> pretend to be Tamara Kaufman Wittes <laughs> when given the opportunity. You know what it is? It's just it's the order that I usually say it, and we're not going to edit that out. You can just pretend you're Tammy today. I'm going to do it. And then I have to pretend I'm Susan. <laughs> oh, that's good. And I'll pretend I'm Shane. I'll be Kamala Harris. <laughs> Excellent. Congratulations, Senator Harris. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate that. On the podcast this week, Russia wants to denigrate Joe Biden and China would prefer Trump lose in November, viewing him as unpredictable, the nation's top election security official says. An investigation by the New York Times raises questions about whether intelligence officials are softening their views on Russia to avoid upsetting Trump. And Biden picks Kamala Harris as his running mate. We'll take a look at her national security positions and how those issues will or won't influence the 2020 campaign. 
Um, so let us start with the first R word, Russia. I feel like we're back to 2016 uh, in the fall in some in some sense. Uh, last week, Bela Venina, who is the top election, he was a top, top counterintelligence official, but really is sort of the point person right now on uh, election interference efforts and has also been leading the uh, the DNI's efforts to brief campaigns on election threats. Um, he came out with a statement on a Friday afternoon, which is always a great time to get lots of attention for the news that you want to break uh, and make my life miserable, uh, in which he talked about there being essentially three kind of key actors uh, that are out there right now that are attempting to interfere on some level with the election. And he singled out China and Russia and Iran. Important context for this, Evanina had talked in very broad strokes about those countries before. He had given classified briefings to members of Congress. Uh, Democratic members then came out and said, basically, he's not telling the American people all of the details about this. We want to hear more. And this statement was, you know, Evanina's maybe first crack at trying to give a little bit more, uh, put a little more flesh on the bone of of what it is that he uh, and the intelligence community know. Now, Ben, Evanina took some flack immediately for this for listing China first in his statement, literally putting it at the top of a kind of three-point bullet list, which some people, Democrats mainly, thought was an effort uh, to make China's interference seem somehow more serious than Russia's or perhaps an effort to equate what Russia and China are doing. And they're not up to the same things. And that's pretty clear if you carefully read what he wrote. Now, obviously, we don't know what we don't know. But but based on this assessment, China is engaged in a longer term strategy to influence U.S. policy. A lot of it is overt. Russia is conducting intelligence operations to confuse people and attack our democratic processes. A lot of it is covert uh, and more immediate and maybe you would even say tactical. So talk about why these distinctions uh, that he's spelling out are important. Yeah. So there's another important distinction, which is that, you know, he articulated that China has a preference for Joe Biden and thereby set up an apparent parallel where Russia is has a preference for Trump. But of course, one is taking active steps in pursuit of that preference and the other is not. Right. And so, look, the difference is and I don't say this in defense of China because listeners of this podcast know that my sympathy for the Chinese Communist Party is uh, negative. But Chinese influence operations in the United States are generally not in the form of electoral interference as we understand the term, but in uh, sort of gross overt overt influence activity. For example, they run Confucius Institutes all over the world. They do heavy-handed stuff involving characterizations of China in movies, right? You know, if you want to distribute a movie in China, it better have uh, no offensive politics to the Chinese Communist Party and maybe even uh, like Kung Fu Panda should be actively attractive to them. They do a lot of heavy response to things they find offensive. You know, 
if a newspaper writes something about Uyghurs, they can really expect to hear from the Chinese embassy or the consulate. As far as I know, they do not do active measures on behalf of or in opposition to individual candidates. Now, if they do that, number one, we should know it, um, just as we should know that the Russians are doing it. Number two, it is pretty clear from Evanina's statement that that is not what he is alleging right now. By contrast, the Russians are involved in a, as you say, much shorter term, much more targeted at the election process effort to influence the United States voting population in a particular direction electorally. And that is a different kind of a threat. And I agree with you that what Evanina was describing was an effort to kind of create a parallelism where there is not a parallelism. These are very different problems. I don't mean to diminish the problem that the Chinese pose here. It's real, it's serious, and it's not actually, as we normally think of it, election interference. And so in the three months prior to an election, where we're worried about the problem of the election interference by an actor who has interfered in elections in the past in a very destructive way that has, you know, undermined the entire ability of the U.S. political system in the succeeding four years to behave itself. You know, I think there's a, it's important for people in those positions to make distinctions accurately. And I feel for the position he's in, he's, for reasons that we'll talk about, caught between a a rock and the hardest of hard places, but uh, that was not a good statement. Yeah, I'll go a little bit stronger than Ben. This was a really bad statement, um, and it was a statement that reflects the real danger of politicization of intelligence. And I, I think we can put ourselves in a good faith headspace in terms of what the people who wrote this statement might be thinking that it that this was a way to be factually accurate while still uh, being politically palatable, maybe in a way that would make the uh, the material contained within uh, the assessment sort of more acceptable or accepted by by broader segments of the government or or the U.S. population generally. What it actually is is a really misleading statement. And the fact that it might be technically factually true doesn't uh, take away from the fact that it's a statement that's actually calculated and designed to mislead. So what they're doing, as Ben says, is describing two things as if they are the same. They're saying, well, Russia prefers Trump, um, or really Russia is taking action to denigrate Joe Biden, and appear to be describing behavior that mirrors what occurred in 2016 and also sounds as though it is a violation of U.S. law um, and sort of an ongoing, a continuation of uh, election interference efforts that are dangerous to sort of the, the core integrity and legitimacy of our democratic process. Then they're saying China prefers Trump not to win and you know, they, they have policy positions, right? They're, they're shaping the policy environment. They're, they're criticizing Trump in various ways, um, which is all 
totally legitimate nation state activity. We might not agree with it, but those the, the, the manner of sort of international engagement in foreign policy that's being described in this statement um, is not problematic. It's not threatening to democratic legitimacy. And so by including them in the same statement, this is designed to confuse the American public into believing, well, uh, China favors Joe Biden and is doing all kinds of bad things uh, to help him. And Russia maybe favors Trump and is doing all kinds of bad things to favor him. Um, and therefore, like, it's all it's all just a wash. That's untrue. And, and it's really, really misleading. Um, it also appears to sort of create the ground on which other more overtly political and less credible actors can build upon. So Evanina puts out this very careful statement where somebody who's well-versed in, in this field can sort of read between the lines, read between each word and understand exactly what he's saying and exactly what he isn't saying. Um, but then we had the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, go on Face the Nation on Sunday and make a series of sort of vague statements um, that sound an awful lot like he is accusing China of taking uh, some sort of overt or affirmative election interference. Steps. So he's saying China, like Russia, like Russia, like Iran, they've engaged in cyber attacks and phishing and that sort of thing with respect to our election infrastructure, with respect to websites and that sort of thing. This is a really big accusation, right? Just as Ben said, if China is, is actually engaging in serious election interference, we need to be aware of that. We need to counter that. The public needs to be aware of that. The Hill needs to be aware of that. That's a serious accusation. Um, and there's reason to not really believe, to, to not really take O'Brien's statements at face value. First, there's a reason not to take a lot of Trump administration statements at face value. But two, he's not offering the kind of specificity, right, or 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 uh, or detail that we see whenever we see officials talk about, for example, Russian election interference or aggressive cyber action by China or Iran in non-electoral contexts. Um, and so I think that uh, this is a good example of the way in which intelligence officials can tell themselves a nice, comforting story that, sure, they're shaping the the intelligence in such a way that might make it a little bit more palatable. But what really matters is that it's true. Um, but what they've actually done is by failing to do their job by speaking truth to power and being clear and candid and forthright and honest, um, they've opened the door for other actors to then manipulate and warp the statements in order to fundamentally mislead the American public. And that was completely foreseeable. And that appears to be exactly what Trump and his allies are attempting to do with this statement now. I suspect that if Evanino were here responding to this, he would say, you know, no, I, I did speak truth to power. Our judgments were the way that the analysts believed them to be true. The ordering of them did not change the judgments themselves. But I think he also would admit, Susan, what you just said, which is that did leave space for others to interpret something that we did not mean. And is he then responsible for that because he should have foreseen it? The other level here that I think is interesting that hasn't been discussed as much just because we're so focused on the way in which it was presented and was that politicization or something close to it was the actual substance of the charges here. Not only is there confirmation that Russia is interfering again in this election, uh, committing information warfare as they did in 2016, uh, but that China is. And the China angle hasn't been getting as much analysis, but 
China wanting Joe Biden to win. Well, well, let's think about that. There have been many people over the last few years who have said the ultimate goals of American adversaries, such as Russia and China, might not be for a particular candidate. It's for confusion. It's for dissension. It's for Americans ripping themselves apart. And let the American people and the political process do the job that we can't fully do from the outside. In which case, why would China not be doing things, perhaps, as Ben said, more overt and less covert, to say, yes, Joe Biden? Yeah, maybe they don't want Trump to win again because they think Trump is such a strong man, art of the deal kind of guy that they can't possibly stand up to him in a trade war. I doubt that, but it's possible. I think it's much more likely that they want to see the kind of debate that's now happening of who's the bigger threat? Is is Joe Biden just as much a threat because of the Chinese? And then watch all of us bicker about it. China has a much lower investment in this, but they get some of the same long-term rewards if this becomes an all-out conflict in the American political system. There have been some examples already coming out about what Russia is up to. And I mean, while Evanina didn't point to any specifically, there was a really interesting story uh, in the New York Times yesterday on, on Tuesday by my friends Matt Rosenberg and Julian Barnes, in which they dissected, or more than dissected, really, they traced this uh, video that kind of went viral of uh, protesters in Portland appearing to burn Bibles, which became this, uh, this sort of um, story that took off, particularly, I think, in conservative media, and essentially trace it as being, you know, a Kremlin-backed video that was laundered ultimately through American press and into U.S. social media. And, and just quickly, one thing it raised for me is, you know, I wonder to what degree after 2016 and our experiences there, uh, and frankly, just Americans' exposure to all kinds of just crap and stuff they see on social media, um, which I hope that many of them know to not take at face value. I mean, do you guys think that Americans are appreciably more attuned to this and more on the defensive and, you know, a little bit more resilient to this kind of disinformation and misinformation and exaggeration? Or, or you know, are we just as, you know, wide open of targets to Russian propagandists as we were four years ago? You know, uh, I think a couple of things on that. The first is that uh, Americans are not a monolith, right? And mm -hmm. uh, the yeah. people who there is definitely a segment of the population that has better antibodies to this stuff than it used to. There is also a segment of the population that does not. And so I'm not sure it makes sense to talk about the American body politics response to stuff like this. These are targeted at segments and different segments have susceptibilities to different things and different levels of susceptibility. The second thing is that, look, all of this disinformation is not created equal. Some of it is much better than others. And when you combine pieces of it that are good with portions of the population that are particularly susceptible, you get stuff like the anti-vax stuff. You know, and we still have, I think every society does, areas where we are more and less vulnerable and types of infections to which we are more and less vulnerable. And, uh, you know, I do think probably on the whole, our herd immunity is a little bit better than it used to be, but it's, but 
leaves a lot of room for, you know, measles outbreaks. Yeah, look, I I largely agree with that. I will say that I, I do think there are two populations that have gotten better and important ones um, in sort of managing and identifying disinformation. So one is social media companies themselves. So the sort of evolution and identification and tools available to respond to what they call coordinated inauthentic behavior, that is clearly dramatically better than it was in 2016. Uh, and we've seen Facebook and Twitter uh, being really, really aggressive about that in ways they weren't in the past. And I think there's been a lot of learning there. Um, I also think there's been quite a bit of learning on the part of the media. Um, And so to the extent that these disinformation operations actually end up having a real effect, it's less about whether or not an individual video might go viral um, and more about whether or not uh, narratives that go viral then are picked up by mainstream media. That's really the point at which things uh, in which these uh, sort of disinformation operations are really wildly successful and and might actually have a real impact on voting behavior. And I do think that we're seeing a media that is more skeptical, more willing to go slowly, uh, and less inclined to sort of follow the social media frenzy of this stuff. And so I I do think those are two populations that um, just are objectively better than they were in 2016. Um, Of course, that doesn't mean that there's not still a huge amount of room for improvement and a huge amount of room for adversaries to make mischief. I will agree with that, but I am much more skeptical about the American population. When I see things like the QAnon faction and the anti-vax faction uh, overlapping significantly and largely merging, um, we have synergies between these various misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theory communities that I think are really difficult to unravel. Well, let's dig in a little bit deeper now to the intelligence community's judgments on Russia, uh, and particularly uh, this fascinating story that ran in the uh, the New York Times Magazine over the weekend by Robert Draper, uh, longtime investigative journalist. Uh, he's got a book, uh, excellent book now uh, out about the beginning of beginnings of the Iraq War, which listeners may be familiar with. This piece deals broadly with the intelligence community's relationship with Trump, which is you know something we've been talking about for four years on this podcast. But he kind of builds a lot of it around the story of this national intelligence estimate on Russia. And, and NIE is essentially a kind of a consensus document views of analysts across the intelligence community on a particular subject or a big question, uh, sometimes maybe a very specific one in the case of Iraq and weapons of mass destruction, actually. But he has this uh, very kind of provocative, I would say, reporting uh, in which he writes that in early September, uh, an email went out from an ODNI official to the various reviewers of this NIE as it's kind of going through it, which you might think of as its editing process, with the latest version of the NIE on Russia attached, uh, which according to the email said includes edits from Beth Sanner. Beth Sanner is a senior DNI official and happens to be the president's key, uh, his briefer who goes in and gives him the uh, the presidential briefing. Uh, says, we have highlighted the major changes in yellow. They make some changes to the key judgment language clearer and highlight Russia's most 
motivation for its influence activities. And the crux of this is this key judgment, kind of think of it like a bullet point in this NIE, according to Draper, <clears throat> no longer did it, as he puts it, clearly state that Russia favored the current president, which is, of course, you know, as you know, goes back to what Evanina was saying about trying to denigrate Biden, I suppose. Uh, he cites an individual who compared the two versions of the NIE side by side and said, instead, in the words of a written summary of the document that I obtained, the new version concluded that, quote, Russian leaders probably assess that chances to improve relations with the U.S. will diminish under a different U.S. president. And then the National Intelligence Board approved the final version at a meeting on the afternoon of September 26th, 2019. So, David, you have briefed presidents. You wrote the book on the president's uh, daily briefing. I'm curious, what was your reaction to this reporting from Draper where he talks about this language change that occurs, presumably, at least according to his reporting, at the at the direction of the senior official who goes in and briefs the president every day? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is one where upon every reading, something else came to me. In some cases, a new fact that I'd missed going through, but often a, a, a new way of looking at these issues. So first of all, the fact that a national intelligence estimate key judgment could be massaged to go over better with a particular customer is not new. The whole idea of these products is to be read. And because they are longer products than a president's daily brief article or a short assessment, they usually are not read in their completion. There are famous stories about the NIE on Iran's nuclear program and even the NIE on Iraq's weapons of mass destruction programs being sent downtown and, and not being read before momentous decisions were made. But the idea that a product can be massaged, that is the language presented in a way to enhance readability, that's part of the job of intelligence. That's a good thing. The danger, of course, is when that ethical boundary goes from being readable to the customer to sounding like you're telling the customer what they want to hear. And that's interesting to me because this is largely a story about the national intelligence estimate process, not about the president's daily brief. This isn't about the president's daily brief being changed to please the president. In fact, Dan Coates told Robert Draper for this article that he kept reminding everyone putting together the PDB that they could in no way modify anything for political purposes. So what happened? This national intelligence estimate was being prepared. Coates was willing to stick by the language exactly as it was, and it sure appears was removed as part of a long string of things the president disagreed with him on for, for this act of wanting to tell it exactly like it was. The fact that the senior office of director of national intelligence official, who also happens to be the president's briefer, is someone who did change that language or suggest new language is fascinating because this is not the president's daily brief. This is, in fact, the national intelligence estimate, which goes to a number of people, not just to the president, and it is not designed personally for the president. So to the extent that the language was changed, and we don't know what's in her heart and in her soul, but to the extent that the language was changed so that if the president read it, he would absorb the message without reacting too negatively, it misses on two fronts. First of all, reporting from multiple sources is showing that the president isn't reading much of anything. Jim Shudo's new book points out 
He's not even reading one-line note cards that are given to him to get messages across. The chances of him reading an entire national intelligence estimate, maybe even just the key judgments, is, is very low. Number two, it misses it because there are so many other customers of the NIE that aren't the president. And I think that's one of the real issues here is what is the process by which these products are being reviewed? Who has the opportunity to review them? The DNI ultimately has the ultimate responsibility for putting it out. And Dan Coates in this article comes out really well because he appeared to have been holding the line on even the perception of politicization. I wish we could be as confident about DNI Ratcliffe right now. Yeah, look, I will note that um, also Dan Coates was one of the few officials that spoke on the record for this story. And so one of the benefits of speaking on the record is that you get to shape the narrative a little bit more. Um, and so I don't think it's surprising that he came out um, as one of sort of the uh, in a more flattering light, although I don't have any reason to um, suspect that his account is accurate. Um, you know, David's right, sort of the the reporting in the piece and, um, and sort of the meat of it all does surround uh, the national intelligence estimate and sort of what it reveals deals about the IC and politicization and decision-making processes. Um, But this is a really long piece. And I actually thought the most interesting sort of new parts of it were more the atmospherics about the way in which Donald Trump as president interacts with national security, interacts with sensitive information. And so, um, yes, it's an affirmation of what we already know, which is that uh, Trump is fundamentally incapable of processing national security information uh, as a matter of national interest, as opposed to individual, personal or political, you know, electoral or even financial interest. Um, But they're also sort of in addition to the sort of the lack of interest uh, and the, the sort of unwillingness to separate his own interests from the interests of his office. Um, there's also a lot of sort of description of the basic carelessness here, um, the ways in which Donald Trump has stopped really attempting to engage with the facts at all, uh, and the ways in which he sort of he's sort of careless with classified information, um, right? So it talks about uh, that Donald Trump sort of likes being around billionaires, that he uses sort of information and access as a form of currency. It describes um, him showing off and bragging about weapons capabilities to sort of these rich guy friends of his um, without understanding the potential consequences um, of revealing really, really sensitive government secrets to individuals who might have financial interests, for example. Um, And it describes that as essentially uh, just being about him trying to show off, like sort of basic ego-motivated bragging. Um, it talks about Trump having put all these wealthy executives on the um, the president's uh, intelligence advisory board, um, and those executives uh, making career officials uncomfortable because they appeared to be asking a lot of questions related to their financial interests, right? So sort of the, the corruption of the entire system um, and the manner in which what the president is doing and, and, and what he's doing in in situations that are unseen to the public and um, un, unexamined by the press, at least until, you know, many months or even years later, um, that, that he's really dangerous and, and careless and that sort of the intelligence community has is kind of shrugging in, in response to that, right? Well, you know, the, the president gets to decide what's classified and not classified. So if he decides to, you know, share information with the Russians in the Oval Office or, 
you know, tell a buddy about some sort of secret uh, technological capability, like, well, that's all shucks. That's just the way it is. Th- that should be this should be an incredibly shocking revelation. Just how dangerous! What a, a breach of the oath of office of, of sort of the duty to to to, to faithfully execute uh, the responsibilities of the American presidency. Um, and in this story, it's just kind of background color commentary because, of course, it's nothing that that is surprising to any of us, even though it, it really should remain deeply shocking. Susan, you're exactly right. And there, there's one other element just like that in this article that I caught reading through it again, where I thought this illustrates so much the problem we are having with this president who treats the office personally, that we just look it over because we've heard similar things so many times. An intelligence veteran who occasionally briefed Trump told Draper that on a visceral level, Trump's view was, you are all supposed to be helping me. But when you'd bring in evidence that Russia interfered, that's what he'd refer to as not helpful. Or if he'd expressed that he wanted to turn the screws on NATO, they would go in with a warning of the consequences of NATO falling apart. And Trump would say, you never do things for me. That really gets to the crux of the problem here. Every president has not liked intelligence they've received. It comes with the territory because intelligence is often telling them their policy isn't working effectively. But all of them appreciate it because it helps get them to the other side. It helps get them to a place where they can fix the policy. This president doesn't even get to that point. This president hears everything in terms of, is this implicitly criticizing me or is this helping what I want rather than is it fundamentally true or not? That is probably the most dangerous part of this article. Ben. You know, I I think as I've listened to you all talk about this, and I agree with almost everything that's been said, one of the things that I'm struck by is how the explanation for this really does lie in psychology, right? That this is what you guys are describing is a narcissistic personality who cannot distinguish national interest from his own interest, and he can't distinguish uh, intelligence reporting that, you know, may not be convenient for him from stuff that he doesn't believe is true, can't distinguish between intelligence reporting that may be bad for Donald Trump and things that are unhelpful or false. And, you know, this is the way, uh, I mean, to, to, to go back to Daniel Dresner's toddler-in-chief metaphor, this is the way the toddler understands the world, right? And if you have a toddler in charge of the intelligence community and you show the information that the toddler doesn't want, the toddler, you know, has a temper tantrum, right? And this is really that. And I think that there's an element of this that is just the sort of fundamental mismatch between the psychology of the man and the role that we expect the president to play. Susan, did you want to make a quick point? Yeah, so just one sort of more, um, I think a little bit of the only optimistic thing I can draw from this piece, which I I thought overall it was like a really depressing piece to read, is actually the way in which um, DNI and ODNI generally are are actually do appear to be playing a role in really, really absorbing the the brunt of the politicization. And so even though we might criticize those institutions um, and the decisions 
that's being made sort of at the end state um, related to the actual phrasing in the NE, uh, in the NIE. Um, actually, this does sort of describe a process by which, by and large, the intelligence community continues to operate as it's supposed to. Information is coming to the top, and then this agency, you know, sort of organization that is that is more political in nature. That is where the the political levels are interacting. And so, while um, we can criticize ODNI for uh, failing that test and for sort of capitulating to politicization, I do think that it's it's actually interesting to see the role, especially sort of how controversial even having ODNI in the first place um, has been, and of course the Trump administration um, in the early days suggested getting rid of the DNI entirely, right, that this was another layer of bureaucracy. Not to say that it's been flawless, not to say that there hasn't been troubling signs, uh, you know, from CIA and elsewhere, but but really um, it does appear to be playing this really important role in potentially allowing the rest of the IC to function, um, which I think will end up being a huge advantage if, for example, we have a change of administration in January 2021. It, it changes, it, I think it sort of, um, it, it stems the spread of politicization and corruption. I think in a way that um, is really important, and, and I would not have predicted at the outset of the administration that, that Odie and I could really play that kind of role. Well, if the Russians are trying to denigrate Joe Biden, uh, they may have a new target for their list this week. Uh, Kamala Harris, of course, Senator Kamala Harris of California. Joe Biden picked her as his running mate uh, in a triumph for conventional wisdom, which uh, generally had seen Kamala Harris always as the front runner, uh, or at least at the uh, near the top of a very short list of final candidates. Uh, we don't have to go over the news so much, but I uh, want to ask Susan, Talk a little bit about what we know of Kamala Harris's foreign policy and national security views and how those compare to Joe Biden's. Yeah, so, you know, this is an area in which, um, right, we're sort of we're working off of Kamala Harris's sort of record as a United States senator um, and her campaign statements. Um, and so I think sort of the big question mark right now is to the extent that there's any daylight between her position and Biden's position. Um, we can get into the specifics, but I, I think there actually isn't all that much, um, whether or not uh, she's likely a pick that's going to shape uh, shape his foreign policy or national security instincts or whether or not uh, she will fall in line with his views. Um, you know, so, so look, overall, Harris is a tremendously mainstream Democrat on, on uh, sort of the issues that we tend to talk about on this podcast. She is sort of one of the uh, unusual senators, uh, Democratic senators on the Senate Intelligence Committee who voted against 702 reauthorization. And so, um, you know, there's, by and large, she sort of falls in line with the party, but has been interested in building a little bit of daylight between herself and, for example, um, people like Diane Feinstein, um, you know, others, you know, Mark Warner, others who um, I, I think are a little bit more uh, of a bipartisan approach um, to national security authorities, and, and she's a little bit more of a skeptic. Um, you know, the other question is to what extent Harris is less bound than Joe Biden is to the very, very specific positions, both as a matter of foreign policy and legality, right? So 
OLC opinions, um, you know, presidential signing statements, things like that during the Obama administration. And so we've seen Joe Biden really attempt to sort of wrap his arms around the the eight years of the Obama administration and not really attempt to distance himself. Um, but when Kamala Harris was a senator, she was in some cases critical. Um, and so I, I think this is an area in which, and again, we're speculating. Um, I, I don't see uh, Harris really changing the trajectory of Biden's views at this point. Biden has a really, really developed and a, a sort of views and, and a bench of talent, a, be, a sort of a very deep bench of talent that are thinking about foreign policy, national security, legal issues, um, you know, both whenever he was vice president and throughout the campaign. Um, so, you know, look, obviously picking Harris is, um, is a pretty strong signs to uh, those individuals who'd hoped we would see the dawning of a new, very, very progressive foreign policy or national security policy that was a break um, with the Obama administration. I think that's pretty clearly not what's going to happen. Um, and while I, I do think actually there's uh, Harris is likely to dramatically influence Biden on a lot of issues, my gut is that um, there's there's just not much daylight between them on foreign policy and national security already. Um, and that actually might have been why she was an appealing pick. And, um, you know, there was a recent piece in the Washington Post by Josh Rogan sort of talking about Trump advisors attempting to hedge against sort of the possibility of a Biden and now a Biden-Harris victory. Um, and so I think the interesting question, uh, you know, really will not be what is the daylight between Biden and Harris, but to the extent that this is the identity of the new administration, what facts are they going to have to confront on their first day of office? Um, and how are they going to go about um, you sort of picking up the pieces, um, especially against an outgoing administration or, or potentially outgoing administration um, that appears to actually be preparing for that exact moment and being and taking steps to make things as difficult as possible um, for a new president and a new vice president to accomplish uh, their foreign policy goals sort of on, on day one of their administration. I am fascinated, perhaps too much so, by the fact that this is the first presidential ticket where the presidential nominee and the vice presidential nominee have both served on the Senate Intelligence Committee. Now, in most elections, and perhaps in this one, that will make no difference because I don't think anyone has ever voted for a presidential candidate because they had intelligence experience. That's not in the, the high list of priorities for the American people in any election. But it is important in this way, perhaps. In previous elections, you rarely had administrations manipulating the intelligence or selectively releasing intelligence or in some way commenting on intelligence explicitly to put their opponents at a political disadvantage when it came to the ballot box. Now, I wouldn't put that past this administration given all of the other norms that have been blown away. Here you have two candidates who, whether it's in a debate, whether it's live questioning by a reporter, whether it's responding ad hoc to an accusation, both of them have great familiarization with intelligence. Biden from the Foreign Relations Committee, but service on the Intel Committee in the Senate, eight years as vice president, getting the president's daily brief. And you have Kamala Harris, who has been on the Intelligence Committee. If Trump or Pence were to do something in a debate or on the campaign trail, like Jimmy Carter never had to face Gerald Ford doing, because Gerald Ford wasn't this kind of guy, saying, 
well, this is happening with the intelligence and it shows that Biden and Harris can't do X, Y, or Z. Biden and Harris can call bullshit on that with great credibility because of their positions. Normally, service on the Intel Committee really doesn't matter. For this year, given the circumstances of 2016 and 2020, it could make for some interesting moments on the campaign trail. I actually want to sound a note of uh, uh, mild disagreement with that. More than mild, I hope. Uh, no, no, mild. I I don't think it matters this year either. Kamala Harris was not chosen because of her uh, intelligence experience or her foreign policy experience, neither of which is especially deep. She's um, uh, she is somebody. If if if. Biden had been looking for somebody with deep national security experience. The logical candidate would have been Susan Rice. Kamala Harris was, and while Kamala Harris has been on the Intelligence Committee, that has not been where she has made her mark in the Senate, which uh, when you think of Kamala Harris's big moments in the Senate, they tend to be in the Judiciary Committee. You know, her her involvement. It's hard to tell who the most actively involved members of the Intelligence Committee are because so much of the work goes on behind the scenes, but that is certainly not the area that she talks about a lot. It's not what, you know, her big themes of her speaking. And I don't think it is even kind of 1% of what makes her an attractive uh, vice presidential candidate. I also think that there is very little legislative experience that prepares you for executive branch national security and foreign policy work. It's not an area where the the Congress takes the lead as a general matter and relatively few members of Congress, there are some, but relatively few members of Congress do the sort of John McCain thing of kind of making their personal brand be about foreign policy, defense, and national security issues. And Kamala Harris certainly isn't one of the ones who who has. Uh, she will, if Joe Biden is elected, uh, have a pretty steep learning curve on this stuff. And that's okay. That makes her no different from, you know, people who have like Barack Obama or uh, walked in, you know, from the Senate and had to contend with the world in all its complexity. And, you know, she's a very smart, able person. And the vice presidency is an almost perfect role to do that, which is, you know, you can be exactly as involved as you want to be. You have access to all kinds of information and decision making. And you also are not ultimately responsible for very much, except to the extent that the president puts you in charge of it. So it's a it's a really great way to go from being a talented legislator who has some engagement with these subjects through things like committee work, but it really isn't what how she's made her mark to being somebody who's a very well-rounded and ready person to walk into the presidency if uh, either Joe Biden uh, does not uh, serve for eight years or if he does and she becomes his logical successor. So I think, you know, I, I don't I don't want to overstate what her 
readiness on national security matters is it's less than some of the other people Biden could have chosen or one of them in particular. But I do think it's a it's a very good way for her to go from being a senator who is no better or worse qualified than any other senator to being a person who's rounding as a as a politician is almost sort of Hillary Clinton like in its depth. I certainly don't think she was picked because she was on the Intel Committee. So I agree with you 100% on on that, Ben. It's simply if intelligence comes up, she can answer it better than, let's say, a Stacey Abrams could, where she probably wouldn't know how to counter some charge made that was blatant politicization of Intel. That's fair enough. I want to say a quick word about Susan Rice, too. And I don't know if others felt this way or not, but I was actually quite surprised to see her on the short list because she has no electoral experience. She's never run for office. Uh, and she, you know, while an extremely capable and visible figure who clearly understands the rough and tumbles of campaigns uh, and has been through the meat grinder herself when she was uh, in the White House in the Obama administration, it sort of surprised me that she was on on that list. And what it said to me, and maybe this kind of amplifies David's point, was A, from everything I've heard, she has a very good personal relationship with Joe Biden. And it seems like that is kind of one of the deciding factors uh, in, in when someone picks a vice presidential running mate. But also because she does have that foreign policy and national security acumen, having been national security advisor and ambassador to the UN and held previous White House positions, that that was very much of a value to Biden, who, of course, as we've just said, is steeped in that and presumably he felt would make her you know, quite qualified uh, to step in for him you know, if he were to die in office or no longer be able to serve. I do wonder in the, at the end of the day if he is calculating as many people believe in conventional wisdom land that he will not seek a second term, that whoever is in that vice presidential slot is likely to be the standard bearer of the Democratic Party in 2024, uh, that Democrats might be more comfortable having that person be someone who has served in office and has a political profile as opposed to someone who does not, and to be quite frank, has her own considerable baggage with Republicans. Uh, Susan. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right. Although I, I some to some extent, I actually think that might be giving too much credit to the extent to which Biden is thinking down the road. Um, I, I was also surprised to see Susan Rice's name um, sort of so prominently on the shortlist, um, and just because she's never held elected office before. Um, obviously, hugely smart, really, really capable person, and I think the fact that she was on that list shows the extent to which Joe Biden sort of wants a governing partner um, and expects his vice president to be as involved in all aspects and elements of policymaking as he was during the Obama administration. Um, and ultimately, the 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 choice, uh, you know, to to go with uh, Kamala Harris is is more a reflection of the electoral realities of the moment um, and fear about putting somebody potentially untested um, and, un, and unelectorally tested on the national stage in a moment in which the number one priority and task at hand is removing Donald Trump from office. Um, and, and sort of none of these other, you know, policy goals and sort of restoration projects and rebuilding international institutions and U.S. credibility, um, none of that can happen unless uh, Joe Biden wins, you know, in November. And so I, I do think that um, the fact that those were the two names sort of at the end of the day is a reflection of the extent to which those were the 
warring factions within Joe Biden's own mind about sort of what he wanted to prioritize the most. Yeah. And if you believe that the final shortlist really was Susan Rice, Kamala Harris, and Karen Bass, Kamala Harris has the least governing experience of any of those three. So I think, Susan, you're right. Why don't we move on to object lessons? Um, Susan, why don't you go first? I have an object lesson. Um, So my object lesson is a program um, called Tech Congress that any technologically inclined rational security listeners might be interested in. Um, So Tech Congress is a really great program that essentially what they do is they take technologists and give them a stipend to go and work for a member of Congress for a year um, and basically pay their salary. And then that person sort of works on, uh, on a member's staff. And the idea is this is a way to help members get a lot more educated about matters of sort of technology policy. Um, so the uh, the website is just techcongress.io. The application is open through August 7th. Um, so people should really, uh, who might be interested, should, should take a look and definitely apply. Um, there are a lot of programs uh, like this sort of um, trying to put different people in members' offices. Um, this has been a hugely successful uh, endeavor thus far. Um, I think already you can see the, the ways in which um, individuals who have been placed in member staffs are, are having really, really significant and immediate impact on what legislation and policy looks like. And so um, it's just a program I, I commend to everyone, um, and particularly people who might be interested in applying. I'm just flagging that there are still a few weeks left. Congress members may need some help understanding technology. Just a tiny bit of just assistance. A bit. Just a little bit. And this is not tech support. This is real policy. Uh, David, go next. I have two potential object lessons, Ooh. and that does not fit. So I will rely on the three of you to tell me which one. Do you want the positive one or the slightly negative one? Oh, slightly negative. negative. I think negative. Definitely. Yeah, Let's go, end it on a, on a bad yeah, note. This is a dark podcast. I thought you might choose that. This is a good news, bad news story, and I chose to cast it as negative so that you would choose it. The bad news is that the Texas Tribune Festival this year will not be held in person as it has been the last few years to bring together people to talk about a wide variety of political social topics in Austin, Texas. Last year, Lawfare played a a role in person with several panels and speakers as part of the Texas Tribune Festival. This year, it has gone virtual, and that's, that's the downside. But they're trying to make lemonade out of lemons in Austin, and the Texas Tribune Festival going virtual has an amazing schedule that has just been posted with virtual events that you can sign up and attend with everybody from Dr. Anthony Fauci and Hillary Rodham Clinton to Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, and even Willie Nelson, for those of you who need your Willie Nelson fix. And because we can't do it in person, yes, Lawfare is going to have a live recording virtually of the Lawfare podcast with Bobby Chesney, who is resident in Austin and can make it seem like a real in-person event for all of you. So if you're interested, next month, they're holding it for the entire month of September. The schedule is available at texastribune.org. A whole month's worth. Yep. Every day they will have some events. I think every day they have more than one event scheduled. Wow. I was supposed to be in Aspen last week. That conference got canceled. Oh. Very sad. Sad. That's sad. Very sad. Uh, my object is a new book I want to flag for listeners uh, by Scott Anderson. Not 
Lawfare, Scott Anderson, but this is the uh, the journalist and author <clears throat> the previous book, Lawrence in Arabia, which some people may have read or heard of. Uh, this is The Quiet Americans, Four Spies at the Dawn of the Cold War, A Tragedy in Three Acts. Uh, David Priest, this is right up your alley as a piece of intelligence history. Uh, it explores basically the stories of uh, four spies, as he puts it, uh, uh, Frank Wisner probably being the most well-known of all of them, but these are sort of people who played key roles in running covert operations around the world, uh, trying to outwit the KGB, uh, you know, the sort of daring exploits of plotting coups and parachuting commandos into Eastern Europe, etc. Uh, but really tries to go into an exploration of the ideology that was at play here, uh, both in the early days of the Cold War and the formation of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, so I've just started reading it, really enjoying it. Uh, it's a very meaty book. Uh, it'll be, I think, timely for people who are interested uh, in intelligence history, uh, but also as we're sort of grappling with a lot of the questions of of ethics and relationships between the president and the intelligence community and the CIA is uh, probably going to be pretty on point and uh, up your alley if that's interested, interesting to you. So check it out. The Unquiet American, Scott Anderson. Thank you. Ben. When people think of writing by Pete Strzok, <laughs> they normally think of text messages. <laughs> and if I never read another text message by Pete Strzok other than the ones that he periodically sends me, that will be too soon. But speaking of books, Pete Strzok has a book out, which uh, it's not out yet. It will be out on September 8th, but it is now available for pre-order and it bears the provocative title, Compromised counterintelligence and the threat of Donald J. Trump. Now, Pete is a, the, the myths that are uh, told about him all the time, notwithstanding, is a, actually a fascinating individual. He is a very good writer, and he has an incredible story to tell. And it is uh, one that I am very much looking forward to reading. And I would urge other people to uh, take the time to read as well. It's a good cover, too, for the book, isn't it? It is. The R in Compromised is rendered as a backwards R, which is, of course, the Russian character that uh, <laughs> says the syllable ya. Does Pete speak Russian? Uh No. But I don't think he does. Um, but he uh, he certainly uh, has done a lot of Russian counterintelligence. Indeed, indeed. And I uh, hope he writes about that in the book, too. That's going to be super interesting. Uh, but until then, that's the end of the podcast, you guys. It's been a time. It's been a very good afternoon spending here with all of you. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can buy, let's see, what could you buy? Lawfare logos with a backwards R, maybe? Ooh. In the Lawfare Russia store. We should do it with like where the where the R is a gun, like in the Sopranos. <laughs> At lawfare.com. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what is there a word for lawfare in Russian? 
I'm sure there is. There probably it's is. not a portmanteau in Russian. <laughs> Listeners, if you can find a rough approximation, please tweet it at us at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook as well. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It really helps us out and helps others find the podcast as well. Our audio engineer this week is Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited, as always, by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week, um, actually by Kamala Harris, who recorded a private Spotify solo just for Vladimir Putin, which she, she sent him from California with love. Ooh. Nice. Nice. It's a deep cut. It's going to be That good. might be, that might be somewhere in your top 57. <laughs> at least, at least. I thought you were going with Hotel California. Mm, that's true. That could have been a good one. Anyway. A little de- first thought. You know. Don't denigrate my choices, Russia. Uh, or Sophia Yans, back up on the keys. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Susan Kamara, Hennessy, just kidding, <laughs> <laughs> and David Fries, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 